I'll pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. I thank you for our time together to learn your word. We pray, Lord, as we look at the filling of the Spirit, Lord, that you would enable us to understand the text of Scripture, which make it clear that every believer has the Spirit and that we all have unity in Christ, that we're all baptized into one body. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us clarity in these issues and help us to discern the glories that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to do a little review. This will be part two of a message that I'm entitling that we are filled by the Spirit, a spatial, or excuse me, not a spatial issue, but a relational issue. And if you remember last week, I made the comparison, the analogy to the Old Testament Shekinah glory. Where do you remember when the Shekinah glory would dwell within the temple of Israel, the idea was not that God ceased to be omnipresent, for he still was elsewhere. He would be where the Philistines were or the other nations. But rather, the Shekinah glory showed that Israel uniquely had a relationship, a saving one with Yahweh. In the same way, you and I being given the Spirit does not mean the Holy Spirit ceases to be omnipresent, but rather that you and I have a unique saving relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that was my analogy. Now today, I want to accomplish four things. Number one... We're going to show that Christ is the baptizer who sends the Holy Spirit. And this is something that is somewhat revolutionary to me in the last 15 years. I always thought, well, this baptism of the Spirit is something that the Spirit is the agent of, and Christ is somewhat out of the picture. Yes, he's the one who accomplished redemption for us, but it's the Holy Spirit who is the baptizer. Not true. Jesus is depicted as the one who baptizes us in the Spirit. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been baptized in the Spirit by Him. Number two, we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit is dispensed four times in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, it follows the programmatic verse of Acts 1.8, that the apostles would be the unique witnesses of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And I'll show you a summary slide of that very thing. The point is, is that through that laying on of the hands of the apostles, the Holy Spirit was dispensed to show unity. Unity is one of the key elements of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that from 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where we are given one spirit, we are baptized into one body, and therefore we are given one spirit to drink. The term one is used three times in one verse. How can you have oneness or unity if, as the Pentecostals say, you have some Christians who have the Spirit and other Christians who don't? No, then you have two-ness. You have some Christians who don't yet have a second blessing and therefore are deficient, and then you have other Christians who have the fullness and therefore have victory. No, you don't have unity. You don't have oneness. You have two-ness. Number four, we're going to show that being filled with the Spirit means that we submit to Christ's rule rather than the world. And so being filled with the Spirit is synonymous with what you see, for example, in Galatians 5.16, where Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit so as not to carry out the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit is synonymous 
with being filled by the Spirit. Let me ask you, is walking by the Spirit or in the sphere of the Spirit, is that for some Christians or is it for every Christian? It's for everyone. Okay, so I'm going to show you a bunch of synonymous passages that will help us interpret what does Paul mean by being filled by the Spirit. Now, I want to show you, last time we talked about this dative of sphere that you and I, I'll pull up my pointer, we went from the flesh, that realm, that sphere of existence at conversion, the moment we believed, we were placed in the Spirit. And we saw that analogy from Colossians 1, 13 through 14, that we are delivered from the kingdom of darkness, or the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Now, next thing I talked about, I'm just doing a little review still, is Jesus is the one who sent the Holy Spirit. Let me turn, have you turn your Bibles to John 7, 37 through 39. Again, we'll just review this. And two points in this text that I want you to see as we build our case is, number one, it's all Christians have the Spirit, but number two, Christ is the one who sent the Spirit. Again, turn to John 7, 37 through 39. As you're turning there, by the way, there was a big debate in church history as to whether the Holy Spirit was sent by the Father alone or was he sent by both the Father and the Son And I think passages like the ones we're reviewing will show us that it's both the Father and the Son that send the Spirit. Notice this is on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. John 7, 37 through 39 says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Stop there for just a moment. What's the imagery of living water? Well, remember the great promise in Joel chapter 2 is that God would what? Pour out his spirit. And so the spirit is often linked to like water, where God pours it upon all of mankind. Remember the great promise is that when the spirit is poured out, it's poured out on all. That does not mean all people without exception, meaning universalism, but all people without distinction, meaning not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. That's what's so astonishing. Now remember what this looks forward to. During the Feast of Tabernacles, every day of it, the priests go down to the Pool of Siloam, they take their flagon filled with water, they bring it up to the altar, they pour it out. And what they're looking forward to is the day that God pours forth the Spirit and Messianic salvation. When you go to the book of Ezekiel and it looks at the millennial kingdom, Jesus is going to be reigning from the temple in Jerusalem. And what proceeds from Jerusalem, according to Ezekiel 47? Living water. Living water. And it's, yes, it's both real and it's symbolic. They're not mutually exclusive. It will literally bring life to the Dead Sea. Does the Dead Sea currently have life in it as far as fish? No. But one day it will. Why? Because there's a Messiah. There's a new sheriff in town, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he'll be reigning, and the curse will be much lifted. That's the idea. So that's being foreshadowed. Now, notice the phrase here in verse 39. It says, but this, now this is the parenthetical comment by John. He says, but this he spoke of the Spirit. Okay, so that's, again, the living water. It's the symbol of the Spirit. Whom those who believed in him were to receive... How many were going to receive it? Well, those who believed. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
The implication is Jesus is the one who sends the Spirit. And you're going to see further corroboration of this in Acts 2. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 33. And here I think we see a very explicit mention of Jesus being the one who sends the Spirit. Remember here, Peter is preaching at Pentecost. It's Acts 2.32-33. And he's explaining the gospel, the resurrection of Christ. He says, this Jesus, this is Acts 2.32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Verse 33, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Now, notice that last clause in verse 33 where it says, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. What is the antecedent to the he? It's actually a third-person masculine singular verb. So, by the way, in Greek language, in English we have to use pronouns. In Greek they can use verbs that have nouns associated with them. They have person in them. So you have a third-person masculine singular verb here. It's obviously linking back to Jesus. Jesus is the one that God raised up. He was the one who was exalted at the right hand. He was the one who received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, he is the one who poured forth this which you both see and hear. Who is the baptizer? Jesus is. He is the one who places his people in the Spirit. That's the idea that we want to see here. Yeah, Brian, I see that you've got a thought. You're mulling over. I'm just curious about this, so I could be way off base. In the Old Testament, if we go back to uh, John 7, what was it, 39. Yeah. uh, The Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When we look at the Old Testament, the... It was always angels or visitations. Even though the Holy Spirit is eternal, the Holy Spirit was not acting in the Old Testament. Is that right? It was messages to prophets were always given by angels or visitations. You know, you know what I would say is the good background to this is Numbers 11. It's not to say that the Holy Spirit was not active in the Old Testament. He certainly was. But you remember the, the passage that anticipates the sending of the Spirit is found in Numbers 11, where, do you remember, uh, there was that one guy who didn't get the memo, and he ends up prophesying, but he doesn't make it to the tabernacle? So this is where the 70 elders are given a portion of the Spirit, it said. So they prophesy. This is all found in Numbers 11, but it says, and they did not do it again. In other words, the uniqueness of Moses was preserved But they did prophesy on that day to show that, yes, God had poured his spirit upon them. Well, do you remember Joshua is jealous for the uniqueness of Moses? And he wants to keep that. There was Medad and Eldad, and they were prophesying. They didn't get the memo. And they're prophesying in the midst of the assembly. Well, Joshua, son of Nun, he's all upset. He goes before Moses. He says, stop these two rascals. I'm paraphrasing. It's the Eric Dalma version. Stop them from prophesying. And Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? Oh, that all of God's people would be given the Spirit and prophesy. And so that looks forward to the time where one day it's going to be dispensed not just upon Moses, but it's going to be dispensed and reside 
within all of God's people, whether Jew or Gentile, whether male or female, whether the, the pastor or anyone else. That's the idea. That's, exactly. And then you see it in Joel chapter 2, reiterating uh, the same thing. Yeah, Bob. Uh, we're not saying that the Holy Spirit wasn't active in people's lives in the Old exactly. Testament. Yep. Because that would not be accurate. Exactly. And that's how they came to faith as well. Uh, what we would affirm is that, for example, in Genesis fifteen six, when it says Abraham believed God and was credited him as righteousness, that was an act of the Spirit. The Spirit brought him to faith. Why? Because he's a dead sinner in Adam, just as you and I are. Okay? So there's no distinction between the Old and the New Testament in the idea of being dead in Adam. So the only way to be regenerated is by a work of the Spirit. So, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Bob. Very good. All right, so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a summary slide. And what I'm going to show you is why do we have these various pouring forth of the Spirit incidents in the book of Acts? We have four of them. It begins in Jerusalem, Acts 2. It goes to Samaria, Acts 8. Then it goes to Caesarea with the Gentiles, Acts 10. And then it goes to other Gentiles in Ephesus in Acts 19. Let me put up this little diagram for you and see if this helps make sense. I even color-coded it, so I went all out. First of all, yeah, wow. Um, Acts chapter 2, we have this pouring forth of the Spirit at Pentecost. Now, remember the significance of Pentecost. What was the first Pentecost in the Old Testament? The giving of the law. How many died? 3,000. Remember, they built the golden calf, and then God has them dispense the swords, and they hack each other. Well, 3,000 end up dying. Well, at Pentecost, when the giving of the Spirit, you have 3,000 that come to eternal life. What the law killed, the Spirit gave life. Now, the Holy Spirit is poured in Jerusalem first. Why? As Paul says in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power unto salvation for all who believe the Jew first and also the Gentile. Salvation goes to the Jews first. So Pentecost... You have the first one, the Spirit is poured forth in Jerusalem. Well, next it comes to the Samaritans. Now, notice here I'm distinguishing between those who are very Jewish, that's the region of Jerusalem, to those that I'm claiming are half Jewish. Remember, according to 2 Kings chapter 17, when you had the Assyrian invasion in 722 B.C., the Assyrians removed many of the Israelites and transplanted foreigners. So the foreigners intermingled physically with the Israelites that were there. So the Samaritans were considered half-breeds. And there was a lot of hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans, particularly because the Samaritans didn't always side with the Israelites in various battles. Like even in the battle against Antiochus Epiphanes IV, in the intertestamental period, the Samaritans were roughly silent and they didn't help their brothers. So there was a lot of animosity. So I want you to think about how all of a sudden you're leaving the very Jewish area of Jerusalem. Now you're coming to Samaria. It's half Jewish. But yet the Spirit's being dispensed because it's going to come upon all people. Not every individual, all people without exception, but all people without distinction, meaning Jew and Gentile. Now, when's the next time we have the Spirit poured out? Acts chapter 10, it's at Caesarea. And remember, Caesarea, it's a very interesting place because it's further away 
from Jerusalem than is Samaria itself. And it's considered more pagan, probably by the average Israelite, than was Samaria. Do you know why? Because that was the headquarters of the Roman garrison. In fact, Cornelius, who ends up being saved, and he's a believer, he was a Roman centurion. And so you can't get more hated than being the headquarters of the Roman occupation of the promised land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet the Spirit is poured forth there? So now the Spirit's poured out. Yes, it's on Gentiles, albeit Gentiles still in Israel. Are you with me? Now, this is starting to become shocking. Wait, they've received it? People that are in the headquarters of where our enemy is? They've received the Spirit? Now, from there, when we get to Acts chapter 19... It's poured forth on Gentiles in Ephesus. Yes, it's poured forth on Gentiles, but now it's not Gentiles even in the confines of Israel. These people are at the remotest part of the earth. That's the beginning of it. And so therefore you see what's being followed is Acts 1.8. Notice Acts 1.8. Remember, Jesus has just told his apostles, hey, it's not for you to know the timing of my coming, but rather what? You will receive power, he says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all the Judea. By the way, I think Jerusalem and Judea go together here, Acts 2. Notice it's and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Caesarea, many people believe that it was in Samaria because it's so close to Samaria. So it's very interesting. Conceptually, you see the flow of the Holy Spirit really follow the programmatic verse. And at the laying on of the hands of the apostles, the Holy Spirit is dispensed following that very verse. Why is that important? Should, because of that, should you and I expect modern-day apostles, the laying on of hands by the apostles, and therefore we're given the Spirit? No, this was unique to the first century. But the purpose of it was to show that there wasn't one church in Jerusalem and a different one in Ephesus. The same apostles who were Christ's witnesses placed their hands on all of them. They preached to all of them. It was one church. And again, that's one of the most important aspects of being baptized in the Spirit is unity. That you don't have many churches, you ultimately have one church of Jesus Christ. Yes. Yeah, I just w- wanted to think it's important to remember that Ananias also, outside the apostles, were given was given the um, ability by God to lay his hand on Paul, and not just not yes, just the absolutely, apostles. absolutely. Yep. So, in Acts nine, yes. So the idea is that was a specific calling for Ananias to restore Paul. Paul loses his sight um, at when he sees, of course, Christ. Uh, risen on the road to Damascus. So absolutely, the laying on of hands, it's interesting, it often has to do with solidarity. And so this idea of solidarity is when we lay hands on people, we're saying, well, this person is with me. And the reason I think that that is so important, specifically with Paul, is because Paul was a threat to the infant church. He was the one who had been responsible for the murder of so many of them, by Ananias placing his hands upon him, not only does God use it to restore him, but it shows then a solidarity with the people of God. And I think that that's a very important fact. So, yes, I think you see that same point here, Bill, 
in the laying out of the hands by the apostles is this idea of solidarity. Absolutely. Um, in, I think it's 1 Timothy 5, we're called to not place our hands too quickly on other elders, lest we participate in their sins. Why? Because of solidarity. So absolutely great point. Thanks for bringing that up, Bill. Very good. Okay, so what I want to do is show some of these passages or read some of them. And I want to begin here in Acts chapter 8. Let's read through the pouring of the Spirit that happens. Oh, I'm sorry. I... It must be my spectacles, Aaron. No, no, I'm sorry. I just wanted to add something, too, to the Ananias. In Acts uh, 9, verse uh, 15. Yes. The Lord actually appeared to Ananias. And he said, but the Lord... See, Ananias said, I can't do this. Right. You know, I mean, this guy's a... He's a hater. Yeah. <laughs> the original hater. Paul. Right, right. But, but the Lord said to him, go... For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. In other words, God specifically told Ananias. Yeah. He, he told him specifically. And that, I think that's critical. Absolutely. This wasn't some subjective unction that Ananias had. It was an objective intervening by God in his life to lay hands upon him. Absolutely. Very good reading of that, Eric. Thank you. Very good. Um, if everyone could turn their Bibles to Acts 8, 14 through 17, we're just going to look at the Spirit being poured out upon those in Samaria. Now, remember, during the earthly ministry of Christ, at some point, Jesus does restrict the disciples from going into the areas of the Gentiles and to the Samaritans. In fact, let me cite you. Again, turn your Bibles to Acts 8, 14 through 17. But as you're turning there, Matthew 10, 5, Jesus says, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter into any city of the Samaritans. Now, they do, but at some point, Jesus... And again, one of the difficult things in the Gospels is to put all of the you know, the, the flow chart of the timing of all things as to when he said this and when this happened... But the idea is there's a prohibition of going to the Samaritans. Well, at Pentecost and after, that's now done. As salvation goes to the Samaritans, Acts eight fourteen through 17. It says, now when the apostles in Jerusalem... Okay, look at our screen real quick. Where does it begin? The apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent them Peter and John. Now, stop there. Why would it be significant that Peter and John come down? Well, to show a solidarity, again, that you have one church. You don't have one in Samaria and one in Jerusalem. There's one church. And again, it says, verse 15, They came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So the laying out of the hands by the apostles in this, this instance shows a solidarity with the church now being built in Samaria. So let's ask ourselves the question. Yeah, Joy. As the mic's coming to you, let's just ask the question, do we have modern-day apostles today? No. So should we expect then the laying out of hands and the dispensing of the Holy Spirit by the apostles. No. Yes. Joy. 
I, I understand the concept about the solidarity thing, but that's not what the scripture says. It doesn't say they re- laid hands on them and then they were, you know, united in oneness. It said they received the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. So, well, let's look at 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, and uh, we'll, we'll come to this again, but let's look at it. I've got it on my notes here. 1 Corinthians twelve 13. I'll read this to you. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Notice the all. Notice the one is used three times, ace in the Greek, three times. What's the point of being deposited in the spirit? Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is not that that's how you were saved. That's not his point at all. His exclusive point in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is that that's how you became one. That's how you became one. Well, let's go to Keswick Holiness. Keswick Holiness has two types of Christians. You have one Christian at conversion who is weak and carnal, who needs a second blessing and to be filled by the Spirit. So now you have not one, but two. In Pentecostalism, you have those who are weak and defeated. They have had the first work of grace, but they're looking for a second work of grace in which the Spirit is going to be poured out upon them and they'll reach a Christian perfectionism. Like, for example, in Wesleyan perfectionism. That's not one group of Christians, that's two. So that's the point of the solidarity. The solidarity happens by being placed in the Spirit. I believe, and again, I'm reading the data from Acts 1.8, the reason the apostles are the ones who are called to do this is to show this very solidarity. They were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It wasn't, it wasn't Eric Dalma. It wasn't Joy. It wasn't anyone else. It was the apostles. There was four criteria that the apostles met that no human being can meet today. Number one, you were objectively and personally called. Number two, you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. Number three, you had to do miraculous deeds. When he did miraculous deeds, for example, the handkerchiefs of Paul being dispensed to people who then were all healed. Um, Acts chapter 5, verse 16, it says, when the apostles were healing, they were all healed. Now, I can pray for people, and I know God still heals today, and I've seen people heal, but I can't say to you that I can heal them all. Okay, so why? Why, why in, for example... In Hebrews chapter 2, why does God say that he was testifying with them, that is, the original apostles, through signs and wonders? It wasn't to prove the existence of God. See, that was the mistake I made. When I was a brand new Christian, I was concerned about whether it was true. That's not the concern in the New Testament. It's not whether God exists. That's a 20th century American debate into the 21st century now. But it wasn't the debate in the first century. The issue in the first century is who speaks for God. And by doing these signs and wonders, God demonstrated it was the apostles. The fourth criteria that you had to meet, according to Peter, is that you had to be with Christ from the beginning. Now, what's very interesting is this is where Paul is unique. And Paul admits this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I was one who was untimely born. 
Okay, so remember, though Paul is brought to the same standard, how long was Jesus' earthly ministry? More, most scholars believe it began probably around 30 A.D. and it ended in 33 A.D. It was three years. According to Galatians, how long was the Apostle Paul taught personally by Jesus? For three years in Arabia. So Paul says he saw the resurrected Christ later. He was taught personally by Christ later. He's brought to the same standard. He does the miracles. He was personally and objectively called. Can anyone claim that today? Anyone had personal instruction by the Lord Jesus Christ for three years? No. Why does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11, when we give the institution, Bob and I, of the Lord's Supper, he says, I laid out to you what I first received from the Lord. That on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. Well, where did he receive that from the Lord? Did he receive that on the road to Damascus? Boy, that's a lot of teaching that happened on the road to Damascus. No, it was later when he was being instructed for that three years, being brought up to the same standard as the other apostles. That would be my contention. So they are unique. And therefore, because they're unique, we're seeing unique things happen in the first century that are not repeatable today. That would be my argument. Yes, Bill. Yeah, I just wanted to um, go back to the 14 there. and. Um, and I'm sorry, which, which one? Uh, verse 14 of, of Acts chapter 8. Oh, okay, gotcha. Um, it says, Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, yeah. um, I, the way I interpret that is if they received it, the word of God, yeah. they have the Holy Spirit in them. Yeah, the Holy, Spirit brought them, he, the Holy Spirit would okay. have brought them to saving faith. Is that right. right. So then my question is, yep. who, uh, it says Peter and John who came down, uh, uh, who came, I'm sorry, Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might, might receive the Holy Spirit. My question is, yeah. if they had the Holy Spirit in them already, why would they have to, that they might receive the Holy Spirit? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we see a distinction. Let me throw it on you. Uh-huh. How can Peter confess that Jesus is the Christ in Matthew 16? It says no one can confess that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Right. And yet he says he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Remember in Matthew 16? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how does he confess that Jesus is the Christ without the Spirit? Well, back then, the Holy Spirit was not indwelt, but now the Spirit I think is that indwelt. That's, I think you're answering your dwelt. question. Yeah. That's the distinction. So what we're seeing then is this permanent residence of the Spirit, yeah. and it's following, again, this programmatic verse by and large. Yeah. And what, therefore, that's the distinction. So I'm not saying that the Spirit doesn't come upon people to bring them to faith. I would say that yeah. in the Old Testament. I just laid out Genesis 15:6. The only way that Abraham could believe God would be yeah. a work of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. But what we are saying, and again, we can't, I can't tell you uh, yeah. on a meter the way the Holy Spirit does this or does that. Right. That's not related to us. Yeah. But what I am saying is that the Bible's telling us that there's a filling of the Spirit that happens at these Pentecost where the Spirit will reside with us. Yeah. And this is not normative for today. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 shows us that what's normative for every believer now mm-hmm. is that we're placed in the sphere of the Spirit. Right. So what's normative now is just as we don't normatively have apostles mm-hmm. who have seen the resurrected Christ, who do miraculous deeds, who were personally instructed by Christ, uh-huh. we don't see that today. Uh-huh. We also don't see separate fillings of certain groups by the Spirit. What we mm. have are people who are brought into the church and placed in the sphere of the Spirit at conversion, and that's what's normative today. 
So, again, that's what I think 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is, is teaching. And, in fact, we're going to talk about that right now, Bill. It's a great segue for this. And do, yeah. do you have another Well, comment? I just want to, I just want yeah. to make a point. At the point where this was taking place, yeah. believers had the, uh, uh, the <clears throat> Holy Spirit in them to make that confession and to believe. Absolutely. When this was written. So, yeah, uh, um, and then it says the Spirit had not yet fallen on them. I mean, that's the term even used in the Old Testament. It would, the Spirit, there, see, I see there's two types of filling. I understand it as like Ephesians 5.18, which I think a lot of us agree. Sure. It's something that we do, whereas to be filled with the Holy Spirit. However, um, having um, looked at this in depth and looking at past revivals that have happened in the church, it's a spirit that's come upon or, or poured out. On, uh, like it says in um, Luke chapter 24, verse 49, the spirit was poured or came upon, it was clothed upon with the Holy Spirit. So it's, I, I see it as two different ways that the Holy Spirit works. Can I, yeah, can I just, yeah. do I have a minute? Can I just, well, I don't well, want to interrupt gonna, your teaching, but I just wanted to. Yeah, we're just going to continue verses. on. But um, go ahead, do you have one more thought? No, no. I, I just have some verses that I'd like to take a look at if, if you all have time. But oh, I know okay, you're, you're um, how many verses with... do you have? Because we'll be looking maybe at a lot of them as well. Well, from John chapter 1, Luke 4, and then Acts, again, Acts 1, verse 8. Okay, um, do you want to read? Uh, yeah. Why don't you start with um, the John, and then we'll okay. go to Bob after that, and then we'll go to the, um, can you read the John 1 and then the Luke 1? Because yeah. we already read the Acts 1, 8. Absolutely. Uh, let's see here. Um, if everybody could turn to John chapter 1, verses 32 through 34. <clears throat> Let's see here. I got a John chapter. Huh? And then when, once you're done, Bill, then we go to Bob Carly. Um, or I'm sorry, Bob's got his own chapter microphone. Chapter 1, verse 34. Okay. Um, uh, let's see here. John chapter 1. I, I'm sorry. I got it. No, let me get my page open here. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, all right. It says, you know, I, I, I see as, as Jesus being the supreme example for all of us. And it says here, John testifying, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending on him as a dove uh, out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I think sure. that's an important word to remember is upon. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the Holy One who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Okay, the spirit came upon him, upon Absolutely. Jesus. So, that's so our... just, let me just stop you, Bill. This actually, I think, proves my point. Number one, Jesus is the anointed one. Mm-hmm. That's from Isaiah 61. He is anointed with the Lord's Spirit. Right. In fact, that's the whole point right. of Mashiach, that he is the one who is anointed with the Spirit. Uh-huh. But notice now you're seeing that he is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So he is the one who places the church in the sphere of the Spirit. And that's a- absolutely the point that Paul's making in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that by one Spirit, it's, a, it's, it's actually probably best rendered in one Spirit or mm-hmm. as a dative of means. Okay. So Jesus is the agent of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and he is the one who's placed the church within the sphere of the Spirit. Okay. So the question is, if we have that happen at conversion now, mm-hmm. then why are you arguing that it doesn't happen for all Christians at conversion? And again, we'll come to, we'll come to Ephesians 5.18, because in Ephesians yeah. 5.18, this filling of the Spirit, that command, it's the same command to be filled with the knowledge of Christ. Mm-hmm. 
to be filled with the knowledge of Christ is to be filled by the Spirit. Is being filled with the knowledge of Christ only for some Christians or is it for all Christians? All Christians are commanded to walk by the Spirit, mm-hmm. literally in the sphere of the Spirit. Right. Is that a command? It says literally so that you will not partake in the deeds of the flesh. Yeah. Is that for some Christians or for all Christians? And so what I'm simply stating is that what you're trying to do is take something that uniquely happened in the first century, the apostles dispensing the Spirit, following the programmatic verse of Acts 1.8, and saying, well, that's normative today. No, what's normative today is exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12.13. And that's the passage that we have to wrestle with because that is precisely the fulfillment of what you just read. It's precisely, Bill, the fulfillment. Let me ask you this where it says, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Who is that? Jesus, Jesus, right. So let me ask you, where in the New Testament does it say that that was fulfilled? fulfilled. Right, where was that fulfilled in the New Testament? If 1 Corinthians 12, 13 isn't about that, then where is it fulfilled? Right, but Bill, I've already answered that. The idea is that he's uniquely the anointed one. So he is the one who is endowed by the Spirit. He's the one who dispenses the Spirit. He and the Father are one. He and the Spirit are one. This is God among us who is the one who's uniquely endowed. That's the whole point of the Messiah. So I think you're actually proving my point is that he is the one who is the baptizer. So rather than seeing some mystical experience where some group is going to be in some Pentecostal church somewhere where all of a sudden some experience comes upon them, and it's never Christ. I've been in these churches. I've seen whether it was a move of the Spirit with Doug Stanton putting his head in the fern bush, or I'm brought to a living word church where they say, just keeps going, I, 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 and it'll come out. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I haven't heard any of you confess who Christ is, why we need him, and how do we receive him. Okay, so my point is um, when we look at what the Scriptures are telling us, This experience that you're seeing in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19, this is exclusive to the first century, just as the first apostles are. This isn't something that's repeatable. Um, What is going to be repeatable is what we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, because it's now normative for the church. So I hope that helps. Well, I tell you what, let's, um, I just want to keep on track here just for the... the... Well, can we, can we come back to it? Because let's look at this passage first, and I want to stay on target a little bit. And then, I'm sorry, we got Bob. Bob wanted to say something, and then we'll get to La- Laverne. Back there, Bob. You had something brewing. I won't say much. I've, I've written articles on this, including one that covers every one of the instances in Acts. I wrote that decades ago. Because my degree, my first degree was from Pentecostal Bible College, North Central Bible College, and great teachers there. And so the claim of that Assemblies of God was based on, they led me to Christ. I have the greatest love and admiration for the, the people Amen. who knew the Lord and cared for me and brought the gospel to me. Their doctrine was the sign that you're baptized in the Spirit was speaking in tongues. And so I wrote a, um, went through every one of these 
and wrote an article way back in the 90s, and so I have a PDF of that. The thing that causes us uh, difficulties is that different groups have different ideas about what the secondary experience is or whatever you want to call it. There's Keswick, I have an outline here from David Dasali, and he lists all the different versions of it, Wesleyan holiness, Chaferian doctrine, which would be Jesus is Lord, Savior first, Lord second. And he goes through all of this, and there's problems with it because however defined, if you end up with a situation where people who love Christ and know him and are born of God and love the word of God, there's lower class Christians and higher class Christians. And that is the inevitable result rather than the unity of the work of God. And the one that in, we're talking about in Acts 8 is for the sake of the apostles. I think the evidence makes it pretty clear from Luke Acts. They were not inclined to accept Samaritans of any sort. Yeah. And you can see that in Luke. And so there's no reason that the Holy Spirit couldn't have caused the same visible result in uh, the earlier part of it. The reason they waited and God wanted them to see these people are mine, accept them. Because Samaritans were summarily rejected. And there's previews of this in earlier Luke where 10 lepers are cleansed. Go show yourself to the temple. The only one that comes back and gives glory to God is a Samaritan. So we have to get the author's point. And what I did in the articles, I went through every single case in the book of Acts and showed that you can't prove a definitive pattern. And so I will try to find that and get some copies of it. So we're not saying that God doesn't work powerfully at different points in different places as he wills that we would bring people to faith. I mean, the miracles God did in my life, I mean, I'd be very ungrateful if I didn't praise him for that. But it's not really definitive or normative for everyone. It's part of providence. What we do know is that no one is born of God and has eternal life other than through the Holy Spirit. And even amongst those in Acts 8, uh, there was one who was an apostate before they even got off the ground. Yeah. Well, you have no partner a lot in this. And he had been right there with everybody else. So it's a little more complex. And um, I'll try to get some material. We can affirm the work of the spirit and the supernatural without ending up with Christians who feel like they're lacking or not fully accepted in the body of Christ because they didn't have the same experience later after their conversion. And uh, in the Assemblies of God, you had to, in order to join, you had to be seeking the gift of tongues. They'd let you in, but somehow you were not fully understood to be one of them until you did speak in tongues. And that created a problem for some who didn't have that gift. 
Well, so, Bob, and what's interesting about that very point is in 1 Corinthians 12.30, Paul asked the question, do all speak in tongues? What's the obvious answer to that rhetorical question? No. Do all have the ministry of healings? No. So that's why we need one another. That's the whole point. When you get to verse 13, he shows, how can the many be one? Well, you're all baptized in the Spirit. That's the whole point of it. But, I'm sorry, Bill, um, we're going to go to Laverne, but the idea of Pentecostalism, Keswick Holiness, Wesleyan Perfectionism, you don't have a unity of believers. You have two rather than one, and it refutes. And I'm going to give you a quote, actually, from a man who comes from a Pentecostal background, Gordon Fee. So you hear not just Bob and I say it, but other scholars will say the same thing. And I'll show you some really interesting things in the Greek here. Yes, Laverne, go ahead. Is that better? There, there you go. (laughs) All right. There, yeah. Very good. Bill, Bob? Okay, Bill. Yeah. I surmise that that's the epi, the coming upon of the Spirit, on the people who already had received Christ and had the Spirit. And here's another example or two. Um, Christ, when he rose, went to the disciples and breathed on them. And he said, receive the spirit. Sure. Then he said to them, go to Jerusalem and wait for the father, for the gift of the father. The epi of the spirit was what, the what? they received I'm sorry, I'm not, when... Um, I'm not, epi? Epi. Oh, epi. Okay. <laughs> I keep saying epi. Oh, okay. I'm okay. sorry. That's the preposition. Yeah. yeah. I think we're reading too much into this preposition. Well, it's there. It's no, there it is. in the text. I'm, I'm saying what you're not understanding the preposition, the point of the preposition. The preposition, the point of it is that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus, showing that he is indeed... God's chosen son. He is the Messiah from Isaiah 61. The breathing out that Jesus does is a foreshadowing, just as he says, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Now, do we take that literally? Or are we going to say, hey, that's symbolic, the fact that he's going to die for me in the future? No, he's doing a lot of symbolism. He's breathing out. He is the one who's going to dispense the spirit. He is the anointed one of Isaiah 61. It's through him that Joel 2 will be fulfilled. He is the one who's going to dispense as Moses prophesied, oh, that God would dispense the spirit and make all of God's people prophesy. He's the one who's going to do that. It has nothing to do with the points that you guys are making. Let's go to um, 1 Corinthians. Yeah, I'm sorry. Continue. Oh, okay, that's the bad. I think that's the battery. But let me, let me, let's turn our attention to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Let's look at that passage. And this is right after Paul. If you remember the context, he's talked about the various gifts that have been dispensed by the Spirit. There are various gifts dispensed by the Spirit. But notice, everyone turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Now, notice what Paul says. Yes, we have one body, many gifts, but he says, for by one spirit, we. Now, let's just stop there. Who is the we? Uh, It's all believers, as implied by the term pas, all. We were all baptized into what? Into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, what I'm going to contend is, notice the term by. I think it's best understood probably either in, it's a, it's a dative of either means. In other words, either the Spirit is the means by which Christ baptizes or He is the sphere into which we are baptized. 
But the point of all of this is the unity of the one. Notice it's one spirit, one body, one drink. Why use the drink metaphor? Because the idea of pouring forth water. The, guy, the idea that God would pour forth his spirit like he would with water. So the unity is being accentuated. That's precisely what the second blessing doctrine destroys. The second blessing doctrine... Hold on, Laverne, we'll come, we'll come back to you. The second blessing doctrine says that you have two types of Christians. Is that taught here in 1 Corinthians 12, 13? No, it's not. In fact, let me read to you someone who has a Pentecostal background. Gordon Fee, a scholar that has had a lot of influence on Bob and I, he probably had the best commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians for many, many years, maybe still does. Listen to what he says. He says, quote, What makes the Corinthians one is their common experience of the Spirit. The very Spirit responsible for and manifested in the great diversity just argued for in the previous verses. For Paul, listen to this, the reception of the Spirit is the sine qua non of Christian life. Stop there. The sine qua non means without which it's not. Okay, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not in Christ. We saw that in Romans 8, 8 through 9. So the only objection is going to be, well, yeah, you may have the Spirit, but you're not filled with it. Well, I'm going to show you again the issue is not the amount. It's a relational issue. It's not that some Christians have more of the Spirit and some Christians have less of the Spirit. The idea behind the command, as we're going to see in, in Ephesians 5.18, to be filled with the Spirit, is the same command to be those who walk by the Spirit. If you walk by the Spirit, are you going to obey the doctrines of Christ or the doctrines of the world? It's either or. If you can be a Christian and follow the doctrines of the world for a time, you'll end up living a miserable life and being convicted, hopefully, by the Spirit and being brought to repentance. But you can do that. Or are you going to live by the Spirit? And again, that's not just for some Christians. It's for every Christian. There isn't a divorce between some and others. Let me go on to read... He says, for Paul, the reception of the Spirit is the sine qua non of the Christian life. The, the Spirit is what essentially distinguishes the believer from the non-believer, unquote. Now, let me read to you what he says by one Spirit, the preposition N. He says, quote, if this is the correct understanding of these two clauses and the full context seems to demand such, then the prepositional phrase in the Spirit is most likely locative. Now, you might say, well, who cares? It's very important. Locative means you are placed in the sphere of the Spirit. It's the location that you're in. What did Colossians 1, 13 through 14 promise? That you have been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. You had a domain transfer. To be in the Spirit is to be in the kingdom of the beloved Son. It is a sphere that you've been placed in. You were baptized by Jesus Christ. That's the idea. Now, he goes on to say this. He says, expressing the element that is they've been placed within the Spirit. He says, just as the Spirit is that which they have all been given to drink. Such usage is also in keeping with the rest of the New Testament. Nowhere else does this dative with baptize imply agency In other words, he says that the Spirit does the baptizing. But it always refers to the element in which one is baptized. Dear ones, who is the baptizer? Jesus. Bill, you read that very passage to us in John, where John the Baptist promises that one day 
It's this Jesus who's going to baptize us in the Spirit. We see the same thing in, in Matthew three eleven. This is John the Baptist. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Who is going to do the baptism? Jesus. Let's look at another one. Here we have John one thirty three that Bill had just cited. John says, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Dan Wallace is a, a scholar who does a lot of our Greek grammar today. And he wrote in a great commentary, he said, if in fact 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen is not the fulfillment of Matthew three eleven and John one thirty three, he says we don't have one in the New Testament. We don't have one. So what 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is about is about this very promise. Who is the baptizer? Jesus is. And how many Christians does he baptize in the Spirit? Every one of us. Every one of us. It says all. All of us who were baptized. That means all of us. Okay, every Christian. It's not just for some. Now, I'm sorry, I want to go back to Laverne, and then we'll come to you, Brian. I'm sorry, do you want to finish up? Yes. We've got a green light. I, I, have the, okay. I have the green light. Okay, so the point that I was making is yes. that when Jesus breathed on the disciples, he said, receive the Spirit. I yes. don't think that's an allegory. But anyway, then he said, go to Jerusalem and wait. And Why, wait, 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 stop there. Why did he have them wait? Because of the epi coming upon the tongues of fire that came out in Pentecost when they were there. Right, but was there something unique at Pentecost? Did they receive the Spirit differently than they had the Spirit before? Yes, this was the epi. It was the coming yeah, epi, upon, right. so which that's, he's that's speaking my point about is that, that what you're seeing at Pentecost is non-normative. That's what I'm claiming is, yes, every Christian has the Spirit, but this starts at a point in time. And so you see it come upon Jerusalem in Judea, Acts 2, upon Samaria, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19, it's to the ends of the earth. That's precisely what Jesus said would happen to his apostles. So my point is, is you're taking something that occurred in the first century where we have something... I mean, does everyone understand how unique an experience Pentecost is? I mean, this isn't something that you have multiple times. This is an epoch of time that changed everything. We have one of the best scholars in the book of 1 Corinthians saying, the sine qua non, the essential ingredient without which you can't be a Christian, is a reception of the Spirit. But, but and yes, I, the spirit. But that's the 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 epi. Isn't that the second the coming? No, no. In other it's, words, it's, no. Wait, wait a minute. Can yeah, you can you consider this? Yeah, that the, the preposition spirit, isn't doing that for you. The yeah. spirit baptizes Christians into the body of Christ. Jesus Christ baptizes people into no, the spirit. No, it's that, two that's, different. No, it's two I think I think baptisms. what you're what you're confusing is the agent of baptism is always Christ. And so when you're looking at the preposition by, which is a, it's a dative preposition, en, so we would transliterate it en, what you're looking for yes, is e -E. not, it's not the agent. The, the Holy Spirit is either the means by which, this is my whole point. This is very important that you see this. The whole point is what I'm showing you is that when it comes to choosing, and can, it can be by, it can be agency, it can be with a sense of means, or it can be, locative or sphere. 
Well, how do we choose that? Do we just say, hey, my personal interpretation is this? No. What I'm showing you is in context, it's Jesus who is the baptizer. I agree. He, wait, 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 wait. So hold on. The spirit. So what that shows us is that that end, that preposition is not to be rendered then as a preposition of agency by the spirit, but rather Christ. There's two choices that we have left then. Is it's a dative of means. Christ is the agent that baptizes by means of the Holy Spirit. Or as Fee argues, it's the sphere in which Christ places us in. I would argue probably for the latter, although Dan Wallace would argue for means. But it's never, as Fee and both Wallace will say, these are men who study the Greek language. I'll, I'll say to you, well, Wallace. Can I just ask a quick question? Well, hold on. Let's, let's look at the scholars, what they're saying, because this is a Greek issue that you're concerned with. Let's read what the scholars say. Let's read Dan Wallace. He says means. He says, our contention is that this is an illustration of M used for means. By calling the Spirit means here does not deny the personality of the Holy Spirit, Rather, the Holy Spirit is the instrument that Christ uses to baptize, though he is a person. Since the pneumatic hagio clearly indicated means, indicates means in these passages, Matthew 3.11 and John 1.33, he says, furthermore, if the Holy Spirit is the agent in this text, there is a theological problem. When are the prophecies in Matthew 3.11 and John 1.33 fulfilled? When would Christ baptize with the Holy Spirit? Because the grammatical improbability of pneumatic expressing agency in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it is better to see it as means and as the fulfillment of Matthew 3, 11 and, and John 1, 33. Thus, Christ is the unnamed agent. This also, he says, renders highly improbable one popular interpretation that there are two spirit baptisms in the New Testament one at salvation, and one later. That's why the grammar matters here. But the grammar has to be determined by the context. Jesus is the agent, and he has either baptized us by means of the Holy Spirit, or he has placed us in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. It's either or. But Jesus is the agent either way. Okay, the Holy well, Spirit I just is not. have a quick question. Jesus, well, as we all know, was born with the Spirit, right? Well, the, the, the Spirit is the third person of the, the Trinity. Spirit. No, he's the one who's... He's the one who's anointed by the Spirit. Okay, but he was born with the Spirit. Well, not at baptism. He's the one who's... What it is, it's symbolizing that this is true of him. He was it's, conceived it's, by well, the Just Spirit. hold on. Let's, let's just be clear about something. Well, wait, let me just finish my question well, real quick. Well, wait, wait, hold on. We, we're talking <laughs> about... Hold, hold on. But we, brought, we need to get clarity here. Jesus Christ is truly God, and he never loses any of his divinity. Amen. He's also truly man. And so what's happening at baptism is not something for his benefit but ours, that you would know that he is the Messiah from Isaiah 61, that he is the one who is anointed. So it's not something that's benefiting him. That's a, a heresy because he is a non-continuous. This is truly God. This is simply saying, for your sake, people, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Okay, are, are you with me? Amen. So Jesus is being clearly depicted as the baptizer we see the passage that shows the fulfillment, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And then it says that we are one, that we are all baptized. Jesus is the agent who does it. But we are still going to therefore maintain that there are some Christians who are baptized in the Spirit and others who are not. I mean, it's starting to stretch credulity. 
That's what I'm saying. If you want to buy into that, you can. I mean, I, you're free to no, believe what you want. No, all I'm but... saying <laughs> is that there is, in the New Testament, the epi, the coming upon of the Spirit, yep, that epi. empowers one for service. And that may Let be me ask you this. the am baptism I, with the dove coming am, down Am I empowered Christ. for service? He did no mighty miracle before that. I mean, he, well, he didn't come into his ministry. Well, let me just ask, you, let me ask you a practical theological question. Until am then. I empowered by the Spirit for service? You have the Spirit, but the epi can come up on you, for instance, when you're ba- based doing the on service. What? Ba- based on what? Based on your preference or based on what the text of Scripture is teaching? Because what I'm seeing in the text is that all Christians have been given the Spirit. That's what I'm seeing. What about the gifts so what I'm, that what I'm, some well, people hold on, get wait, wait, when stop, they, stop. When they yeah, receive we, the Spirit? There's many gifts. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Even though there's many gifts, there's one body, one Spirit. Out of the diversity, you have the unity. Why? Because we've all been baptized into the Spirit by the agent who is Christ. If you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit. And here, let me end with this. The biggest problem is that we don't see salvation as a miracle. If you believe that you chose to believe in Jesus Christ apart... No. No, I, I'm not saying... I'm just saying hypothetically for anyone. If you don't see the need for regeneration by the Holy Spirit, you will never see conversion as a miracle. Amen. And if you don't see conversion as a miracle, then you don't understand when Jesus says, and by the Spirit, or he says, greater works will you do than me. The greater works that you and I are doing is bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. That is a supernatural spiritual event. Here's the point. I'll leave you with this. I've been in a lot of charismatic Pentecostal meetings. That was my background. And I can tell you my experience. And again, I'm not judging the scriptures in light of my experience. I've judged my experience in light of the scripture. But what I saw is a lot of people wanting a supernatural experience, but they wouldn't confess Christ. That's what we need. The Holy Spirit brings about the confession of Jesus Christ. Yes, very quickly, two, and we'll close two, the prayer. Uh, two quick things. Um, that, according to Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I have learned that has a deep background in church history, sure. the teaching that all believers, when they become regenerated and become believers and receive the Holy Spirit, he said that the teaching that they were all, everybody's baptized with the Holy Spirit at point of conversion started in eight, around 1850. That it actually started with started, the Apostle Paul. Now, that's not what he says. And well, he uh, might not say that. Let's one? read it again, then. Let's read it again. Uh, yep. 1 Corinthians 12, and, 13. Let's well, read it again. Nope. Let's, let's, we're going to read Scripture because right. I'm going to judge what you said in light of Scripture. I don't okay. mean to be harsh, but let's, sure. let's read it again. For sure. by one Spirit, by the means or into yeah. the sphere of the Spirit, yeah. we were all baptized. Who is the we? Uh, all of us. Believers. Yes. And the all would accentuate that it's all believers. We were baptized. That's a passive. Who is the implied agent who's doing the baptizing in light of Matthew 3.11 and John 1.33? Jesus is the agent. He's placing us all Christians in the sphere of the Spirit. So Martin Lloyd-Jones is wrong. Okay. All right. Well, let, let's let's okay. close our let's and just then, close and then you, you mentioned received in, in John 20, verse 22. The er, a Greek heiress imperative never has a future meaning. No, you know, we have plenty of those. We have proleptics. There can be tons of foreshadowing. We have proleptic heiress all the time. In fact, Revelation is littered. A proleptic heiress is a tense in which it says something is so certain that it's spoken as if it's already occurred. The proleptic heiress is littered. I taught that as I taught verse by verse for the book of Revelation, as you well know. So that, that's not true. So let, let's bow our heads in prayer.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you. We pray for unity in our body. We do pray, though, Lord, that your word would rule and not any person's interpretation that is in error. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your word would rule, that your spirit would rule, and that we would have unity in the spirit, one body, one spirit. And Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, for Bob DeWay as he preaches the word to us out of 1 Corinthians, that we would have ears to hear what he has to say, that we would be hearers of the word, but also doers, Lord, not just hearers, but doers of the word. And Heavenly Father, we do pray that we'd have unity in the days to come, that we would see one another as those who are placed in the spirit by Christ the baptizer. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.